0: Welcome to Black Feminist Rants, conversations on reproductive justice and activism. Black Feminist Rants is a podcast where we focus on reproductive justice, student activism, and what it means to be a young Black feminist today. Each episode, this podcast will serve as a safe space for us to rant about the specific issues surrounding being a Black woman and femme in the social justice landscape. We will also learn and grow as we engage with different reproductive justice and social justice topics. I am your host, Lakia Williams, and let's begin! Hey everyone, we are back for another episode of Black Feminist France, this is episode 2. I'm your host, Lakia Williams, I know you heard all that in the intro, but I am super excited for this week's episode. As you probably already know from the title and from social media, um plug if you're not following us on instagram Rants, give us a follow but we have a special guest loretta ross so i'm super excited to have loretta on for this episode for those of you who may not know loretta ross is a scholar activist one of the founding mothers of reproductive justice and we had a really great conversation we touched a lot of different topics such as abolition the current political uprisings Um, and how those relate to reproductive justice, mental health for activists and organizers, some misconceptions about reproductive justice, and who can practice reproductive justice, and who it's meant for. Um, So a lot of great things. So I learned so much. I hope you all learn just as much, if not more than me. And I hope that we can just have a conversation where we... uh, really just talk about what we learned from Loretta Ross and kind of keep the dialogue going past just this episode of the podcast. So please go to the Instagram. I'm probably going to make a post where I just ask you your thoughts on this week's episode. So yeah, without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. First, I just wanted to say thank you so much for agreeing to um, be interviewed and to be on the Black Feminist Rants podcast. To begin, can you just introduce yourself with your name or pronouns and any titles that feel comfortable and make sense to you?
1: Well, my name's Loretta Ross. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm a professor in women's studies at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, and I use she, her pronouns. Yes,
0: and you're also one of the founding mothers of reproductive justice. <laughs> Yeah, I was lucky enough in
1: 1994 to be with 11 other black women in Chicago uh, when we developed the reproductive justice framework. And I'm astonished at its popularity. As a matter of fact, the new black president of Planned Parenthood says that she's envisioning a reproductive justice takeover of Planned Parenthood. So it's quite rewarding for a black feminist theory to move from the margins to the center of power like that.
0: Definitely, it's very popular, especially I can speak for my generation. Everyone is saying reproductive justice left and right.
1: It's a human rights way of demanding the rights that we need. That goes beyond the pro-choice framework, because what happens when you don't have choices? And what are the structural issues of racism and white supremacy and neoliberal capitalism that keep us from owning our bodies? And so, of course, Black women would start with recognizing that since we were brought to this country, someone else tried to own our bodies so we're the fiercest defenders of sexual and reproductive freedom there ever been (laughs)
0: definitely um to begin can you uh start with i know sister song normally says everyone has a reproductive justice story do you feel comfortable sharing your reproductive justice story
1: Well, I've been in the movement for 50 years so I've told my story to 1.15 million people (laughs) at one time. Um, I was a teen mother because of rape and incest. I became pregnant at 14 and in 1968 abortion was not legal in the United States so I had no choice whether to have the kid. The only thing choice I had was whether or not to keep my child, and I chose to keep my son when, he, when I was 15 when he was born. And I ended up co-parenting with my rapist because we had a child between us. And so I became an activist, largely because I didn't want what happened to me to happen to other poor black girls. I was sterilized at 23, which is also part of the reproductive oppression that many black women experience. And so even though I was majoring in chemistry and physics at Howard University, thinking that I was gonna end up in a laboratory somewhere, my plumbing kept getting in the way, I <laughs> just trying to be a teenager and a young adult in charge of my sex and sexuality kept getting in the way. And so finally, you know, after the world hit me upside the head enough, I figured out that I needed to become a professional feminist. And so that's what I've done.
0: Yes, so I know there's some Black women who kind of divorce the idea of feminism because of all the issues with inclusivity within the feminist movement. Do you see that um, reproductive justice and feminism are like inextricably linked? Or how does that relationship?
1: Well, reproductive justice is Black feminist theory. So, feminism is embodied within reproductive justice. I don't know if black women are divorcing themselves from feminism, but from the white supremacy within portions of the feminist movement. That's different. Uh, I think black women were feminists before white women were feminists. And because we understood what body oppression intersected with racial oppression felt like. And so, I'm not one of those that subscribe to black women don't join the feminist movement. Hell, the feminist movement wouldn't exist without black women helping to create it. So I'm not going to let someone write me out of my own story because they have an impoverished understanding of what actually happened in terms of the development of women's consciousness and feminism. But i'm okay with people not wanting to use the word feminist i mean i've been in the women's movement for 12 years walking around saying i'm not a feminist but (laughs) you know because i was reacting to the whiteness of what i thought was feminism and it wasn't until a lot of older black women in washington dc who had that little blue hair all quaffed to the side and white gloves and stuff and they didn't even understand my little baby dreads and my body mouth. They didn't like me. But they pulled me to the side because they were the women who knew Mary McLeod Bethune and Dorothy Height and Ruth Sykes and so many other black women from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s who were doing the work. And so they mentored me even though they didn't like me and so I've learned first of all not to throw shade on my elders because they didn't give up on despicable me and the fact that we also shouldn't give away our power by allowing others to define us out of our own movement and so I like people using womanism I like people using feminism but I particularly like people using black feminist theory and if you just think of our most recent three contributions. When the Combahee River Collective wrote their statement in 1997, I mean, 1977, that gave us the concept of identity politics. And then Kimberly Crenshaw comes along in 92 and starts talking about intersectionality. And then we came along in 94 with reproductive justice theory. Those three things alone have transferred have transformed everything everybody thinks about feminism and so i think what happens is the first time people encounter the formal expression of feminism is probably through the hands of a white professor or somebody just like the term women of color and so they don't know its origins and the ownership claims we can make about having developed this novel and universal theories that everybody's using, but then they don't cite the black women who created it.
0: I definitely agree with that because I feel like my um, introduction to feminism was through like this white centered space. And I never really, like I've read the Combahee River Statement, but I've never really realized how black feminism, like there wouldn't be a feminism without black feminism, how important that is and how like that kind of grounds us. So I really like that you kind of put that into perspective for me. But so during the truth set, ain't I a woman? Right. was <laughs> the articulation of intersectionality, <laughs> you
1: know? And so we can't accept these whitewashed narratives of ourselves um, as truth. They simply are not. And that's why the best scholarship for me always happens outside the classroom as opposed to inside the classroom. Because there's a certain internalized level of white supremacy that's in academia. And so they treat, they teach from a very subjective point of view and they impoverish our stories.
0: Can you speak a little bit to how the reproductive justice framework came to fruition with you and the other 11 black women?
1: We were not prepared for what happened. In June of 1994, 12 black women were at this conference sponsored by the Ms. Foundation and the Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance. And we were all from different organizations. I wasn't even at a women's organization at the time. I worked at the Center for Democratic Renewal, monitoring hate groups and fascist organizations. But I'd done a lot of abortion rights work in the black community. And for now, because I was the, I started now's women of color program from uh, 1985 to 1989. But anyway, 12 black women were in Chicago, and we heard this presentation from a representative of the Clinton administration, President Clinton. And Hillary Clinton, his wife, of course, had been put in charge of trying to usher in health care reform. And the centrist Democratic Party somehow thought that if they omitted almost all references to reproductive health care and health care reform, they could somehow sneak it past the Republicans. And as black women, we said, the Republicans are mean, but they ain't all dumb. I mean, how is that gonna work as a strategy? And why would you come to a feminist conference and ask us to support a male-centered health care plan? because reproductive health care is the main driver of women to the doctor. And so if you omit reproductive health care from health care reform, how are we supposed to support that? And so late that night in one of our hotel rooms, we can't even remember whose hotel room, but I think it was the hotel room of Abel Mabel Thomas, who's a state legislature down here in Georgia. Uh, Abel and... I and others started talking about, well, what are we going to do? We decided to purchase a full-page signature ad in the Washington Post so that we could speak directly to Congress and say, we Black women don't like what y'all are doing around health care reform. In that conversation, we also... Pointed out that we did not like the fact that abortion was always isolated from other social justice issues. As a matter of fact, anytime a woman is dealing with an unintended pregnancy, She has what I call the oh my God moments going through her head. Oh my God, what am I gonna do with this pregnancy? Oh my God, can I keep my job? Oh my God, what am I gonna tell my mother and my partner? Can I stay in school? Do I have healthcare? Do I even have a bedroom to put a child in? And it's those oh my God conversations that determine whether or not an unintended or unplanned pregnancy can become a wanted pregnancy. And all of those other questions are what we call human rights issues. The job, the healthcare, the lack of violence in your life, the ability to stay in school, affordable housing, all of those things. So those are social justice issues that we felt that the pro-choice framework didn't really include when they were just focusing on the narrow lens of abortion. So we embedded abortion in social justice, and we actually spliced together reproductive rights with social justice and coined the term reproductive justice. And then we based it on the human rights issues, the human rights framework, because all of those other social justice issues I just talked about are in fact human rights issues. So we leveraged into the definition, the global human rights framework so that we could move beyond the narrow Um, limits of the U.S. Constitution that was, by the way, written by slaveholders. And we at first thought that we would just put the ad in the Washington Post, and we were very lucky because over 700 black women, including Angela Davis and a lot of celebrities, signed on to the ad, which, and we thought it was all over, because we were all from 12 different organizations. We weren't working in one organization and then sister song my former organization was founded in 1997 three years later and we decided to test whether or not reproductive justice was a capacious and sturdy enough concept to build a new movement of women of color working for our human rights and it turned out to be wildly successful uh now that i think reproductive justice is the dominant framework that women of color use and the left wing of the white women use as their preferred way of viewing reproductive politics through a human rights lens. And so there's the background story. Sometimes you create something great and you don't even know you've done it. I was remembering about maybe about five or six years ago when I was idly Leafing through my social media feeds, and a minister of health of South Africa started talking about using the reproductive justice framework as the scaffolding for what their healthcare delivery system. And I mean, I fell out of my chair because I, you know we had not tried to do an international campaign to talk about reproductive justice because we actually felt, at least I did, that it was a U.S.-based framework because globally, more people are familiar with the human rights framework than we are here in the United States. So I always expect with those that already know human rights don't need to use the phrase reproductive justice, where we needed to use it because of our internalized practice of American exceptionalism that removes us from global human rights Conversations as a country. But I almost fell out of my chair when I saw the South African health minister talking about reproductive justice. And I shouldn't be surprised. It's a global conversation whose time has come. I've talked to people in Ireland, in Brazil, in Venezuela, Colombia, Asia. I mean, I've just been in conversations with a lot of populations and organized feminist health activists who find it a useful phrase because in some places the term human rights is contaminated by authoritarian regimes. And so they're able to use the phrase reproductive justice also in in sectors where the term abortion is too volatile. So I think it's kind of like the South African women said, you have dislocked You have struck a rock and you dislodged a boulder that will crush you. (laughs) And that's what reproductive justice feels like for me.
0: So you said that um, reproductive justice is probably the like dominant theory right now, um, which I definitely agree with. Have you seen any people who, because reproductive justice is so popular within itself that people use that term with actually, without actually doing the work that reproductive justice necessitates without actually embodying the principles that um, surround reproductive justice? It's kind of like a co-opting of the term. Well, you know
1: we're in a neoliberal capitalist system, right? (laughs) So they will pimp and commodify anything, including their own mothers, in this system. So yes, I've seen it. But I also offer a cautionary note for those of us who are reproductive justice practitioners. We don't have the need or the right to set ourselves up as the boundary cops. This is a powerful universal framework that is owned by everyone because everyone has the same human rights. It's based on human rights. Black women created it, but it doesn't only apply to black women. That's a racist interpretation of it that somehow black women can't create something so universal that it applies to everyone. And I don't like black women leading into into that narrative out of some identity essentialism. It's really a truly universal framework. People adapt it as they need to. I see indigenous women changing it so that it focuses more on sovereignty. I see immigrant women changing it so that it focuses more on immigrant rights. I see trans women changing it so it focuses more on bodily autonomy, gender identity. I mean, this is what a really powerful framework does It provides a cohesive theory that connects the dots for people that explains things that don't look like they should be connected, like they are together. And so I really do dislike when black women say, well, you know, so and so's not black, so they shouldn't use reproductive justice or so-and-so like Planned Parenthood. Let me tell you about Planned Parenthood. Just this morning, on, a, on Dazon Dixon's radio show, the new incoming Black prisoner Planned Parenthood says that her vision for Planned Parenthood is to lead them into the reproductive justice movement. Now, a whole lot of people are going to say, wait, 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 that's Planned Parenthood, blah, 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 blah. But when Black women create a theory that shifts the power to us, I don't think we need to be ashamed of that and I don't think we need to be afraid of that power and not fail to own that 12 black women caused a 100-year-old organization to rethink their strategies about how they're in this world. And so, yeah, there's going to be some messiness with it because I've seen people trying to use reproductive justice in a very empty way. But one of the things that I write in my reproductive justice theory is that reproductive justice should be a criteria-based framework, not an identity-based framework. So if we adhere to the original criteria about human rights and universality and inclusivity and centering the most marginalized people in the lens and dealing with white supremacy and neoliberal capitalism, if you can hit those marks for me, I will anoint you as a reproductive justice organization with my own personal hands because that means you're expressing the values of reproductive justice and i don't care if you're white i don't care if you're trans i don't care if you're any of those things if you use criteria but i think that some people think of it as an identity based framework that only black women specifically and more generally people of color should have access to and use. And I think that's a diminution of our own power. It's, it's underperforming of our own
0: framework. I definitely see what you're saying. I was watching your, um, one of your lectures at Smith College and you said something along the lines of, um people want to do the work to make themselves feel good without um without wanting to do the transformative work where they decenter the people with privilege to create a more inclusive frame for everybody and I feel like you can see that with some um, people who like adopt different frameworks because they're popular and I know you're against call-out culture so is there a way that you think that it would be useful to like call in these people who are kind of adopting these terms and to kind of get a pat on the back without incorporating um, like all the criteria you were just listing instead of using the call out culture?
1: Well, I have to kind of give you my own private theory of change to answer that question. I believe those of us who consider ourselves woke, who populate the women's movement or the LGBT movement or the environmental justice movement, economic justice, prison abolition, immigrant rights i mean i could go on listing all the movements but we share a world view that something's dreadfully wrong and that we need to build a human rights movement to address these things that connects us all of these different movements together so that we can amass the power to actually make change that human rights becomes a way of life and our value system I call us the 90 percenters in my theory of change. Then outside of us are what I call the 75 percenters. These are the people who share a partial worldview with us, but they don't know our leftist language, our insider jargon. They're not only do they not understand intersectionality, they might be offended by our use of it because it sounds elite to them. You know, it just sounds like we're talking down to them instead of with them. And an example of a 75% for me as a reproductive justice activist might be the Girl Scouts. They're not gonna teach about uh, abortion rights in the Girl Scouts, or if they do, they probably keep it very really under, under the wraps. But at the same time, they understand the necessity and the, and the urgency of empowering girls and women and so they're going to be my 75 percenters and then outside of the 75 percenters are people like my mom my mom is what was an evangelical christian who didn't believe in birth control or abortion and she thought actually sex was a sin because she was born in 1922 she would have been 98 this year and she was raised by my great-grandmother who was born in 1893. So she raised her daughters with strictly Victorian values, you know, wearing girdles and not wearing pants and all kinds of things. But as a 50-percenter, I never doubted that my mother loved her daughters. You know, because she showed that to us every day. She was alive, but she didn't understand my politics. She didn't understand the words she actually feared that I was becoming a communist lesbian I mean she didn't know what was going on with me she just said well I got a son that's a pharmacist and I got another son that's an architect and Loretta just doesn't go to jail too often I mean that was kind of how she described me because social justice activism wasn't a language she was familiar with so I call my mom a 50 percenter Because she was just as capable of pivoting to the left towards my values as she was towards the right for her preacher's values. Right? But that ain't gonna make my mom disposable because she doesn't, she lives in that 50% bubble. And then outside of the 50%ers, I called the next set of circles the 25%ers. Now, these are people who basically support Donald Trump and are very susceptible to be moved by the fascists, uh, make America great again, people, and probably the only thing we have in common with them is that we both need oxygen, but they don't believe in masks during COVID, and I do. (laughs) I mean, but there's not a whole lot of common ground we have. And then outside of the 25 percenters, are the zero percenters, the actual fascists. And those are the people I target. That's the ones that I most worry about because it's not about having conversations with the 75, the 50s, or the 25. It's about they want to exterminate us. They want to wipe us off the face of the earth. And so the mistake that I most see among social justice activists is they they try to come out of that 90% bubble and try to convince 25 percenters to join them. When you don't even have a common language, you don't have a common worldview, and it's not going to work. You have to really develop a a highly toned set of skills to talk with someone with that divergent view from yours. And at the same time, we spend ourselves calling out, The 75 and the 50 percenters from not totally being 90 percenters. And that doesn't make sense to me because the way that we're going to overwhelm the 25 percenters and the zero percenters is adding together the power of the 50 percenters, the 75 percenters, with the 90 percenters. And to amass their power does not require them joining the 90 percent bubble. And by the way, even within that 90% bubble, we spend too much time calling each other out because we're not 100%ers. And 100%ers are cultists. We're building a human rights movement, not a human rights cult. And so I am writing a book on calling in the calling out culture because I think we're using bad strategy in terms of building human rights power when we indulge in the call-out culture and think it's effective political organizing. Now, I have no problem calling out the 25%ers or the zero percenters because I define them as opponents. But to call out my allies,
0: I don't see how that makes sense. So what is another frame of accountability that we can have for allies who maybe make missteps that we don't want to call them out because we can all grow and
1: learn? Well, I'm really intrigued By the work that people like Mia Mingus uh, is doing with transformative justice and the prison abolition people are doing with restorative justice. So I think there are new practices for holding people accountable for harm, but figuring out ways to keep them in the family so that we can learn together how not to cause future harm. But when we use the call-out technique, we're actually replicating the prison industrial complex that we're so busy criticizing because we're using punishment and exile as our strategy instead of forgiveness, radical love, and figuring figuring out how to do better together. And that, again, brings me back to my original point. The concept of radical love is... We woven all through every black feminist writing I can find, and yet it's so obvious. It's like oxygen. We haven't actually really paid attention to it, and I can't blame you know everybody because until I became a human rights activist, I didn't realize that human rights, uh, the demand for human rights, that phrase was written through all the black writings going back to Frederick Douglass saying it in 1858 and so it was right there hiding in plain sight and i didn't know it until much later about the mid-1990s when i started reviewing all the stuff that i had missed the first time i read them and so i think the pathway forward is human rights as a legal moral and political framework but the other thing that I want to bring into the conversation is what philosophy, what set of values should we be employing right now? And so that even harkens me back to the ancient African philosophy of Ubuntu, which is the philosophy of human interdependence. You know, roughly stated, I am because we are. I can't have a self-definition. Out of the context of the community and the society and the world in which I'm, be- I'm embedded. And I think that stands in stark contrast to the isolationist, alienated, enlightened, European enlightenment philosophy. Where you know, each individual is in competition with other individuals for food and survival and blah, blah, blah. That scarcity model. The Mbutu philosophy is an abundance model. And by the way, if you study Mbutu, they talk a lot about holding people accountable, even murderers and not exiling them and figuring out how to make them responsible for the harm that they've done without sending them out into the desert to die. And so I think we've lost a lot during the enslavement. And I'm so happy that people from Southern Africa, particularly South Africa, like Nelson Mandela and Bishop Tutu brought back into conversation the Mbutu philosophy. And there's other pre-colonial philosophies that we need to look at. I read the Talmud, I read Buddhism, I read Confucianism. I wanna look at all the ways people thought about the world before the Europeans arrived.
0: Thank you. I've never, I never heard of Mbutu, so thank you for that. I'll definitely have to check that out. Um, you talked a little bit about, um, the prison abolition and, um, police abolition that's happening right now. What are your thoughts on the current political climate in terms of Black Lives Matter and abolition and how it connects to reproductive justice? Well,
1: first of all, I think that Black Lives Matter is very much connected to reproductive justice. As a matter of fact, Sister Song and Black Lives Matter issued a joint statement a couple of years ago showing the overlap between the abuse of Black women's bodies uh, through reproductive oppression and how that's a, that's part of Black Lives Matter because it's either by the state or by healthcare or by Clan members is still abuse of black, or even our intimate partners is still a, abuse of black women's bodies. But this particular summer of COVID, which is I'm trying to call it because I remember people always saying the summer of '68. Well, the summer of 2020 is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. Um, I am so overjoyed at what the young people are doing I you know I can't march anymore i basically hobbled to my bathroom but the way young people won't let go they are understanding that they've got to turn this whole system upside down and they will not let anybody get away with anything now sometimes I think they overreach I mean I don't know if I want to join them in pulling down the Lincoln Emancipation Statue that was paid for by, you know, free black slaves. I mean, So you need to do a little bit of homework before you just assume things about your targets. But at the same time, every generation has the right to decide to struggle on their own terms. So who am I to be a backseat driver saying, well, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. That's not my role. My role as an elder is to offer the lessons that I've learned for younger people to use them however they need to, but not try to criticize the strategies they choose just because they wouldn't be the strategies we used in the past. Now, I do want to talk about the strategy of nonviolence though, because I think that is worth really exploring because I was on a call around prison abolition a few days ago, and I've forgotten the speaker's name. I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. But she said, the strategic use of nonviolence is to expose and highlight the violence of the state. If you cannot distinguish yourself from the violence of the state, you will lose the support of the people you want to lead. Now, of course, I came out of the black nationalist movement around self-defense and, you know, my colleagues were people in the Black Panthers. I wasn't in the Black Panthers, but other people that influenced and mentored me were. And so I kind of poo-pooed the whole kingy and non stuff as being passive submission to white supremacy. I didn't understand it as a younger person. But as I've learned more, about history and its effective youth, particularly in South Africa. Now, they had both a violent and a nonviolent strategy. They had armed struggle, but the way they brought apartheid to its knees was by bringing the whole society to a halt. And that wasn't done violently, that was done nonviolently. And so, i really hope that we can have more conversations about how powerful forced nonviolence is because it really does illustrate the genocidal use of violence by the state and we have to be able to draw a contrast between our methods and theirs
0: thank you so it sounds like you are a proponent of transformative justice i was wondering um like what your thoughts on it was as someone who's been like a survivor of acts of violence, um, what transformative justice would look like to you?
1: Well, I, I can say I'm an advocate for it without actually practicing or understanding much about it. So I don't want to oversell myself. As I said, that's why I bought into the conversation people like Mia Mingus, who is an expert on it. I hired Mingus to come te- teach me about transformative justice. So. I want to give honor to her and me and I share a particular story. She and I graduated college together the same year in 2007, but I was 55 and she was 22. And so we're classmates as well. But my experience at practicing transformative justice was when I was the director of the DC Rape Crisis Center, which was the first rape crisis center in the country. I was just third executive director. And we had received at the Rape Crisis Center a few years before I came, this letter from black incarcerated men who were serving lifetime sentences for rape and murdering black women. And I remember in particular this one named William Fuller who wrote this line that I'm probably paraphrasing, but he said, outside I raped women, inside I raped men, and I don't wanna be a rapist anymore. And Will or William was the biggest, baddest, most buffed up brother in the prison. I mean, he was the alpha male of the prison. And we sat on this letter for a long, long time because here we were, black women who were rape survivors being asked to work with black men who had raped and murdered women. I mean, this just, whatever we thought about doing the work, that wasn't it. Um, And eventually, you know, I got in my car and we drove to Lorton, which was a D.C. prison at that time, 20 miles outside of D.C. in rural Virginia, and met with William and about 15 other guys who had gotten together. And at first, I thought that they were just trying to use us to smuggle in cigarettes or drugs or tennis shoes or something into the jail, because incarcerated people do whatever they need to do to survive. But he made it very clear that no, this is about somehow he got note of some black feminist literature that predated the letter. And he said, no, we want to learn about black feminism. And we thought that y'all be a good idea it would be good to reach out to y'all for you teaching to us. And it shook me up. First of all, I'd never gone into a prison where I had to be you know, search so inti- intimately and almost strip search and cavity search before going in and out of the situation. So that by itself was discombobulating and very dehumanizing when I was just visiting and I had to go through all of that. Um, so that was for me personally. But what they were doing was starting prisoners against rape the first black male-led anti-violence program in this country and it was an honor to be able to work with them as they pawed through the books we bought because every book i bought to the prison i had to buy like five copies of it so they could share it amongst themselves and uh If you look at my library today, I still have multiple copies of The Destruction of Black Civilization on it, as if I forgot I had it already and I had to buy another. But it really was a result of Prisoners Against Rape. And so that's my lived experience of transformative justice. We didn't have the theory of transformative justice to guide us, but we also knew that these brothers were the men of our community who had been exiled into Lorton and At the time, since they were serving life sentences, we knew that they couldn't use us to seek early parole or anything like that. We actually had said that was one of the guidelines. We will not use us except for our knowledge. And so I'm really proud of the work we did, but I have to honestly say about 15 years after that first meeting with William Fuller, I'm walking down the streets of Washington, DC, And I hear this bass voice, Loretta Ross, Loretta Ross. And I'm turning around, and there's William Fuller walking on the street. And I almost fainted, as I never expected to see that brother on the street. But we chatted, it turned out that he had gotten released a few years prior to this meeting, and he'd gone into construction work, and he was very grateful for the fact that we invested in him And his consciousness and um you know that is the end of that story i don't know what happened to william after that i've i've actually tried to google him a couple of times to see what happened but with no luck but that to me is lived transformative justice in my experience
0: definitely i I think lots of times now like on social media um we talk about transformative justice and Uh, we have to see the humanity in people even after they've done done crimes but I see a lot of people kind of draw the line at like murder and rape and they're like humanity but up until this point so I think it's it's very useful that you've shared this story where you can see like humanity for everyone regardless of the crime they've committed because we're like we're all humans and we all like are capable of transforming and evolving.
1: The difference between who I think Positively about transformative justice is it starts with a willingness to be accountable for the harm you've done. If you're not willing to be accountable for the harm you've done, transformative justice is not for you because it hinges upon that accountability. But if people are willing to be accountable, even if they don't know how to escape making awkward promises and blaming others for what happened and all of that, I'm willing to work with you But it starts with acknowledging the harm that you've caused and being accountable for that. But if you're not ready to be accountable, then I'm actually, you know, I got other punishments for you.
0: Um, I was, I think I was listening to you on the Deep End podcast and you talked about um, the importance of seeing a professional mental health provider and that in the movement, it's kind of like, idealize that you know, you have your rituals for self-care and to like, ground yourself, but you emphasize the importance of actually seeing a professional. Um, can you talk about your experience with uh, professional mental health um, services and why you would kind of advocate for young activists and people in general to um, seek professional help?
1: Yeah, in my early 20s, while I was at the rape crisis center, I was counseling and advising many other rape survivors to go see a therapist, but I hadn't taken my own advice. And what was happening to me is that I had not dealt with my compounded trauma from first, I was raped first at 11, when I was kidnapped from a Girl Scout outing, then there was the incest, and then there was a gang rape at 16, my first year at Howard. And so I had all of this trauma in my soul and in my heart, and I kept self-medicating on it. I actually became a drug addict on it and a sex worker during that period. And so it all came to a head and a collapse at the DC Rape Crisis Center. And I decided to take my own advice and go get some help because I had basically destroyed myself and my reputation trying to be an activist at the same time and pretending that I had it all together when in fact I was self-destroying myself, you know, self-destructive. And so I went and fortunately at Howard University, I met this black woman named a a black therapist named Ayana, who actually trained Ayala Van So (laughs) I always wondered if if, if Rhoda, as her name was back then, was copying what Ayana had taught both of us. (laughs) And anyway, um, and she was gracious enough to offer me sessions that cost $50 a session for $5 a session because she really believed in black women. And so I started a lifelong engagement with therapy, trying to bring myself back from the brink of suicide. Because I was frankly suicidal when I went to first work with therapy and you know I might be passively suicidal now because I still have not gotten my weight under control and other bad habits that I have that's a more passive suicidal but back in my 20s it was active suicide it wasn't passive at all hell I was only 110 pounds then. the weight thing hadn't happened <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I really do encourage people just like you go to a doctor or general practitioner for your physical health, you need to go to a therapist for your mental health because racism, misogynoir, uh, sexism, heterosexism, transphobia, all of these things Our body blows against our heads, our mental states, and you can't self heal yourself out of that, nor can you ritualize yourself out of that. You can burn all the sage you want and chant, and you'll still be crazy as a motherfucker, okay? (laughs) And then you'll be inflicting your trauma on everybody around you because they're accessible. And so, (laughs) no, you cannot chant yourself into mental wellness. You can do these self-care things, but you need a head doctor as much as you need a body doctor. And I passionately believe that, and I self-reveal that as often as I can, because we need to destigmatize mental health care in the Black community.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I also something I've um, realized as I've gotten a little older is like the importance of community and surrounding myself with people that I really care and love about, love that I care about and love. And I think you mentioning that there was this black woman and she really just loved black women and she offered that service at $5 instead of 50 that like, that's what I wanna be when I'm older too, like young black women and young people. And that's also what I look for and like people that I surround myself with
1: and you can still find black women who do that my therapist now i encountered ann taylor because she was providing free therapy sessions for women black women with hiv and she was running the support groups at grady hospital for free and so when i finally was able to pay a hundred dollars a session guess who i hired the woman who was giving it away and i've been with her for the years I've been in Atlanta and I will always invest in people like Ann because I know where her heart is and that's interesting about Ann I hope she doesn't mind me telling this about her but we could be as unlike as two black women ever could be so stop the search for looking for someone who you can relate to and who looks like you Ann is retired from the military she used to be she was in I think the Army, but maybe the Air Force because she told me about how she had to train jumping out of planes with parachutes and stuff. This is like, you jumped out of fight here. Yeah? And then she ended up uh, specializing in therapy for women veterans with PTSD. And she's extremely Christian. She's a Delta. And my girl, my girl never steps out the house without her glasses, her shoes, and her watch matching her outfit. And so you saw two black women who you wouldn't think would be in a loving, therapeutic relationship with. You would not have put radical Marxist Loretta Ross up against ultra capitalist Christian Aaron Taylor. And so... You really have to let go of the superficial things and look at people's hearts.
0: Would you, would you advise people, too, um, like Black women, to seek therapists that are Black women, but maybe all, all the other attributes don't align?
1: Well, it's almost like seeking relationships. You can establish a relationship or a therapeutic relationship with anybody. You just have to work harder at it when the structural barriers are there. Uh, I think. So if I were to deal with a white male therapist, I would have to overcome the structural barriers between us before we could get to my emotional needs. And with, and I, I'd probably also have to manage his emotional needs as well. And so, you know, because there's, there's almost reflex among white people that they, they want to manage even if they don't know it. And so, because <laughs> they've been acculturated that way and so I wouldn't turn down a white male therapist like I wouldn't turn down a white male partner but I'd have to make sure that that person was worth the extra labor it would take to be in a right relationship with them
0: thank you um so we're almost out of time for my last question is there any advice you could leave for the listeners of this podcast um advice you would give to young black feminists who are interested in doing this work or doing work similar to you or just have aspirations and following in your, in your footsteps.
1: Well, one thing that one of my mentors, Leonard Zeskin, told me when I was learning how to monitor hate groups and fighting the fascists, he used to say, Loretta, lighten up. <laughs> he says, you take yourself entirely too seriously. Cause I was working to death and I, you know, never took off and, you know, thought 18 hour days were the norm. And I really lost my humor and my joy of life because I was up front against fascists and the vomit of America. So, you know, the world looked very ugly to me. And Leonard told me one time, he said, Loretta, lighten up. Fighting fascists should be fun. It's being a fascist that sucks. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, okay. Here's the leading anti-fascist researcher in the world telling me to go out and have some fun and toggle the consciousness brain off so that I can watch Twilight when Twilight didn't exist back then. But you know what I mean? Go out and shake my booty without a conscience and come back and still do the work. And fortunately, I think that's why I've been able to hang in here for 50 years because I party as hard as I work. I have just as much joy hanging out with my apolitical, religious church people who, who, who... throw yellow ribbon parties for the troops i'm protesting the wars that they're in and, oh, and they're the ones that keep me centered and balanced and they're the ones that will be at my funeral carrying my casket because we don't share politics we share love
0: that's beautiful <laughs> thank you i think that's a good reminder especially with like how competitive like everyone is and like just wanting to be the best to remember to just have fun and just do the work.
1: Just do the work and make all the mistakes you can make. I love Alicia Garza because I want to say this a quote from her that I heard when we were sharing a panel one day. She said, I'm so tired of us making the same old mistakes. I'm ready for us to make new mistakes. <laughs> and I thought that was beautiful. but. Also in that is don't be afraid of making mistakes because social justice work by definition is a big experiment. We don't have blueprints. We don't have paths carved out for us. But if you can't forgive yourself for your mistakes, then you can't forgive others for their mistakes. And I heard that from Alicia and I was like, right on.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. I. I've learned so much in this one hour. I remember meeting you at Let's Talk About Sex. And in those five minutes, I learned so much. And so I knew I was going to learn today, but I learned even more than I would have even thought that I would have. So I'm really appreciative for you spending an hour with me, talking to me, and just letting me learn from you.
1: Well, thank you. And make sure you send me the link to the podcast. Yes, I will. All right. Thanks for having me
0: so i told y'all that was going to be an amazing episode i hope you believe me now um i really hope that you all enjoyed it um but like i said go check out the instagram because i'm going to ask you all what your thoughts were yeah so thank you again for listening to another episode of black women's rants and i hope to see you next week